Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, 2 Corinthians, Strength and Weakness. If you've got your Bibles with you, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and let's just read our text to get our minds and our context into what we're going to look into today. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test, and I hope that you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not be wrong, not that we appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth, for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Lord, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, what we do want to just examine our hearts and lay them bare before you, Lord. We do come empty-handed, and Lord, we just come with your desire that your spirit would just speak this morning. Just go, your word would go out in power, and it would accomplish in us this morning, in each one of us, what you have set it out, you have destined for it to do in our lives this morning. And Lord, we just want to give you praise and honor, Lord. It's such a joy to gather around your word and hear your voice this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I, was, when I was in the Marine Corps, uh, one of the basic things, you know, one of the important parts of basic training was learning how to use a compass and a map. Well, I wasn't very good at it, at least not in the beginning. I never seemed to arrive at the, at the place designated on the map. I was always off. And then over time, I realized to get to my destination, I needed to check and recheck my coordinates on my compass and my surroundings to give me assurance that I was on the right path. I could not just kind of pick a heading and then just kind of walk off and hope at some point that I would reach my destination. You know, two, three, four hundred years ago, a captain who was, you know, sailing a ship across the ocean would need to check and recheck 
his bearings, his headings, keep his eye on the sun, keep his eye on the stars if he hoped to reach his destination. And so why is that important? Well, if you're just off by one degree, it can have a dramatic effect on whether you actually reach your desired destination, especially if it's a long journey. Now, if I, if I just go off by one degree, if I move one foot across the stage, I'm going to probably miss my target by 0.2 inches, which is not very dramatic. But over 100 yards, you're going to miss your target by, by 5.2 inches if you are off by one degree. Over the course of one mile, that's 92.2 feet that you have now missed your target if you're off by one degree. If, if we were fly here take this whole entire church and go south to Albuquerque as the crow flies, 350 miles south. If we were off by one degree, we would miss Albuquerque by six miles. Now, if you were to fly then from San Francisco, say, to Washington, D.C., and you were off by one degree, you would end up in Baltimore, 43 miles away. And say you were very ambitious and you said, I want to fly around the globe from Washington, D.C. to Washington, D.C. And you were off by one degree. You would miss your destination by 435 miles and end up in Boston. Now, I hear Boston's good this time of year. (laughs) One degree makes a huge difference, right? Especially over time. But even if you have the correct heading and the correct bearing, there are forces that affect your direction. Wind is a major force that can push you, right? It can push you off track. You have to take that into account. For a sea captain, the water current is something that has an impact on his direction. But there are also things that affect your compass as well, like high voltage power lines or batteries, magnets, temperature. Did you know that the compass readings fluctuate with the movement of molten iron ore in the Earth's core? I know a bunch of you are engineers, so you probably already knew that, but I didn't know that. You know, so that goes to show that you can have all your ducks in a row and, and, be, and still be affected by things that you're not even aware of. And that's why it's wise to examine at regular intervals whether we are truly headed in the right direction. Now, this is going to be one of Paul's chief exhortations to us in this closing chapter of 2 Corinthians as we bring this whole series to a close, to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, to see whether we are truly walking the path God has set before us towards the destination, which is Jesus And for some of us at examination this morning, well, it might be a wake-up call. For some of us, it's going to be an affirmation of being exactly where God wants you to be. Now, the title of today's message, you're taking notes, is Examination That Leads to Assurance. Examination That Leads to Assurance. We're going to look at four things today, four talking points, if you will. The first is discipline. Second, authority. Third is examination. And the fourth is assurance. So discipline, authority, examination, and assurance. And so the first talking point today is discipline. So for the last six months, we've been going through this letter, this second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. This is kind of season two of a drama that started way back when Paul received a letter from the household of Chloe. 
detailing some erroneous teachings that the, that the, church, the Corinthian church had adopted and some of the excesses that characterized uh, their church services. And, and Paul was made aware of sin and, and worldly ideas that had entered the church. And this prompted him to sit down and write 1 Corinthians, which we looked at, to address some of these issues and to let them know also that Timothy would be coming to visit them and that he too would be making a journey to Corinth on his way to Jerusalem after passing through Macedonia. Well, Timothy makes his trip to Corinth and he gets back to Ephesus um, where Paul has been staying and he brings disturbing news that things were just not going right. Things were not well with the Corinthian church. And this prompted Paul to cancel his trip to Macedonia and head straight from Ephesus to Corinth. Now, if you remember in chapter one of this second letter, that it was Paul's intention then to return to the church in Corinth after he went on to Macedonia. But we're told that Paul endured a very hurtful personal attack from an individual in the Corinthian church. And, and the church itself did not come around him and protect him and stand by him. This caused Paul, of course, then to cancel his return voyage to, to Corinth. And instead, he just returned straight back to Ephesus from Macedonia, and he proceeded to write what has come to be known as the severe letter. Now, we don't have a record of this letter. It's alluded to in Paul's letters to the Corinthians, but we don't have a record of it. It's been lost to history for us, but what we do know is that someone, this someone might have been Titus, took this letter to the church in Corinth, and it seemed to have had its desired effect. By this time, Paul had made his way to Macedonia again, and he was there, and, and Titus brought him the news that the church in Corinth had taken action against that individual who had attacked him personally, and they, and they had sought to bring restoration and repentance into that situation. And so Paul, in the first nine chapters of, our, of the letter to the second, the second Corinthians that we've been studying, the first nine chapters, he, he's, uh, he responds to this good news. That, that he heard back from them, and even urging them to not be very severe to, uh, with, with this individual that had attacked him, like, you know, seek reconciliation, forgive. But then there's a decided change in tone when we come to chapter 10 and on to the end of the letter. In chapter 10, Paul now turns his focus on a different group of people, the super apostles, as they've, as they've been come to know, and kind of like in a sarcastic way, Paul had called them the super apostles. But in chapter 11, in not a very sarcastic way, he had called them representatives of Satan. And this group of people, they had done everything they could do to discredit Paul in the eyes of the church that he had founded. They had attacked him, attacked his uh, morality. They attacked his um, credentials, his integrity, his message, even his lifestyle. They, they even insinuated that he planned to line his pockets with that collection of money that uh, we read about in chapters 8 and chapter 9 of, of this letter. Most of all, though, they attacked Paul's authority as an apostle. They said, anyone who gets beat up that much, who doesn't have an impressive stature or, or speaking ability, cannot be one of the great apostles or a representative of Christ or a leader. 
Now, there is some debate as to, to uh, why there was such a change in tone starting there in chapter 10. Some have postulated that the, the letter that we're looking at is actually two letters that were put together. Some argue that Paul received news. You know, he was sitting there at his desk. He's writing Second uh, Corinthians, and he's, he's on chapter 9, and somebody walks in and, and says, hey, guess what? I just heard about this group of people and this things are going on. This stuff is not well and not right. And so Paul realizes now I have to write and deal with this as well. And that's what we get chapter 10 through 13. Whatever the reason is, whatever, we don't know. But the, the beginning of chapter 13 is definitely directed at this group of people, these, these super apostles and those that had been influenced by them. Now, Paul makes it very clear in the verse very first couple verses there that when he arrives, he will bring the rod of discipline. And remember way back, if you were with us, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 21, that what, he says, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? And it seems in this case, at least, with these super apostles, that Paul needed to come with the rod. He needed to exercise church discipline. Now, church discipline is tied to the holiness of the church, the fact that we are set apart unto the Lord as, as his bride. And it means that God has set us apart from that which is common. Now, it's not based, of course, on our own merit, but, but in Christ. And that's why Paul starts so many of his letters to the saints in Christ Jesus, to the saints, you and I set apart in Christ Jesus. And sometimes as pastors and leaders, we are called upon to protect the holiness of the church. And maybe it's under attack from, from worldly ideas or false gospels or blatant sin or just wolves who desire just to hurt, hurt the sheep. And I know over the years I've been called on to, to exercise church discipline. I know that Pastor Nick is has had to do the same. It's, it's definitely not fun. It's heartbreaking many times, having to confront someone who is refusing to, to repent or is intent on bringing destruction to the church, even to themselves, or is deluded with the false gospel. It's a lot of difficult, difficult conversations preceded by a lot of prayer. But in all grace and wisdom, always seeking restoration, Sometimes these things, they just have to be done. Now, I just want to remind us at this point that, that Paul started this church. He considers himself the spiritual father of this church. And he has exhibited the traits of a parent throughout his letters to them. He is a proud, he's a proud father, boasting in them every chance he gets. And we read about those things in, here in his letter. He is, a, he is jealous for them. He's protective We've seen that as well. He wants, he wants the best for them. He doesn't want them to be hurt. He's shown disappointment, as parents often do when their children, you know, make bad decisions. And he's also been a disciplinarian, as every good parent should be. The writer to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father's spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And this has been Paul's goal all along, that their lives would yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness and not the the quarreling and the jealousy and the anger, the hostility, the slander, the gossip, the conceit and disorder that he spoke of in chapter 12 that we looked at last week. And this rebuke by way of a letter would be the first step for them to examine their lives and see truly whether they were living according to the principles of the gospel of Jesus that Paul had taught them. And we know Paul's heart. He's made that very clear throughout this letter. Last week, if you remember, he said in 2 Corinthians 12, in verse 19, the second part, it says, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking to Christ, speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding or for your, uh, yeah, for your upbuilding, beloved. Then at the end of this chapter, he writes in verse 10, for this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. I like what one pastor said. He said, church discipline is not a hammer for crushing a wayward brother or sister. It's a redemptive intervention that calls people to turn back to the Lord who loves them. You know, when we suffer under God's hand of discipline, we need to just recheck, recheck our heading. Make sure we haven't been influenced by forces within or without and got, got off track somehow. You know, pushed by the wind of some trendy ideas or, or pulled, by, pulled by the current of popular opinion or compromised by sin in some area of our lives. And Paul makes it clear there in verse 1 that if he has to be severe when he comes on his third visit, that'll be done as prescribed in the manner the Bible has laid out. Quoting there from, from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, which Jesus then would later reiterate in Matthew 18, 16, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Paul's saying to us that, and saying to them, there will be due process. You know, he's not going to come in there with this rod of discipline and heads are just going to roll. There's going to be due process. There will be a preponderance of evidence. And we will see who the false apostles are and who are not. And, and none will be spared, which, which means that there, that there will not be any discrimination, Paul says. Wealth and influence are not going to exempt you. You're not going to pay your way out of the process. Paul's rod of discipline is going to be an equal opportunity rod. So quite the courtroom drama here, right? So Paul, who so far has been the accused, he has now turned the tables. He's become the accuser. He's now moving from defense to offense. The primary matter before the court is going to be authority. Authority. Who truly has authority in the church and where does it come from? And this is our second talking point. Authority. It says there in verse 3, since you seek proof, 
that Christ is speaking in me. So Paul's legitimacy and authority as an apostle has been questioned over and over and over again by his critics in the Corinthian church. And these critics, who to some degree, they've been able to influence the church, they, these, they just didn't find him impressive at all, completely unimpressive. And that meant to them, in their eyes, that he lacked authority. Unimpressive in speech and oratory ability and stature. And by all accounts, Paul was, you know, he was not a looker. And, uh, you know, he was not physically imposing. He might even have been blind or very hard of sight. And they said he had no style and no charisma, no personality. He wasn't relevant. He didn't understand the culture. All he ever did was talk about the cross, you know. He worked with his hands. This was anathema in Greek society among the elite, always falling into some kind of trouble, like it followed him around like a magnet, you know. In their eyes, these were not the standards of an apostle, even a church leader and pastor. It would seem that much of the, this, the Greek, you know, ideas of preeminence and appearance and speech had infiltrated, to some degree, the church. The, you know, the Greeks, they idolized oratory skill. You know, Aristotle called it rhetoric, the art of public speaking. And your ability to give great speeches was a measure of your character in Greek society. And Paul, well, Paul just didn't measure up. In their eyes, he was weak, just a weak, weak individual with a weak message and therefore no authority at all. And Paul's reaction to this has been to spend this whole letter to the Corinthians here, redefining what weakness and strength really mean in the kingdom of God. Over and over again, we've looked at that Paul, looked at that paradox that Paul's been writing about, about the, the paradox of strength in weakness. And Paul understood full well what it meant to walk in his own power, in his own strength. He was an exceptional Jew among Jews. He was a top-tier Pharisee among Pharisees. He was he had education, he had knowledge, complete with reputation. He had letters of commendation and a lot, and it resulted in him killing and persecuting Christians, walking in complete opposition to the gospel. And Paul says, no, no. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. So when I am weak, then I am strong. So now one last time, as we come into chapter 13 of this letter, one last time there in verse 4, Paul is going to bring that same argument, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So what is Paul saying here? Well, he's saying in the same way that Christ appeared weak on the cross, yet was vindicated by God in the same way Paul may appear weak on account of his sufferings and hardships, yet he will be fully exonerated by God's power when he returns and sets matters right there in Corinth. That Christ's weakness was actually a powerful demonstration of his willing obedience to his calling, even to, 
the death on the cross, which you read about in Philippians chapter two. In the same way, Paul's weaknesses, his insults, his hardships and persecutions and difficulties are the means by which God manifests his power. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, Paul is saying my weakness didn't stop or hinder the power of God. In contrary, it helped facilitate it. There's no other explanation, he says, for my life except for the power of God. I'm sure they, they would have been reminded of Paul's words in his first letter when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come, complain, come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul's authority as well as mine, as well as yours, lies in the weakness of a crucified Messiah who defeated death, rose from the grave, and now sits at the right hand of power in heaven, interceding for you and I. This is what we celebrate each and every week as we gather together as a church. That in Jesus, we have the power to walk the path of righteousness, the path he has already laid before us. We have his word to illuminate that path. And keep us going in the right direction. You know, when we feel like we have strayed, we're not we're like, am I going the right way? We can come to his word. We can come to the word of God. We can check our compass. You know, Paul's authority does not lie in oratory skill and signs and wonders and visions, but in the power of the gospel to transform lives. Paul is now going to take it even further. He's going to say, you have been examining me, my motives, my life, and my message. Now I'm telling you, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, which brings us to our third talking point, examination. We read there, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. The accused has become the accuser. And it's not so much Paul was not defending his apostleship as much as, as he was questioning their genuineness as followers of Christ. Paul was asking them, saying, test yourselves. What is the foundation of your faith? It would seem that Paul seemed to Paul that the fruit of the gospel that they had turned to was quarreling and jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, sexual immorality and impurity. It was not the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And Paul essentially is saying, I belong to Christ. Do you? He's done persuading them in all patience and kindness as he's done through two of his letters. He's, he's bringing it down here to the point. He's endured attack after attack of his, his ministry and his life and, his, and him as a person. And he's saying, I belong to Christ. Do you? So let's just camp out there for a little bit as we look at that. Paul asks a valid question here. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. 
Do you know that Jesus is in you? We're checking our compass here this morning. Are we on the right heading? Are there influences that are, the forces that are influencing our direction that need to be accounted for? Because the sad reality is that not everyone who calls himself a Christian is a Christian. Matthew 7 makes this perfectly clear to us. Jesus tells us in starting Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will, you, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Are you confident in the foundation for your faith? Is it man-centered or is it Christ-centered? Examination, examination is a healthy practice in the Bible. The psalmist writes in verse chapter 26, he writes, Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. He goes on in Psalm 139. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We do this kind of examination in our everyday lives, right? In a month or so, you know, when the new year rolls around, we're all going to examine our lives and examine our life choices as we make New Year's resolutions. You know, am I going the right direction? Well, how much more when it comes to our eternal destination? And maybe there's someone today, you know, you're, the foundation of your faith this morning is you. You trust no one but yourself. But you're here today because deep down inside you know that that might not be the most stable foundation to be standing on. So you're here maybe by invitation this morning or you're, you're here on your own searching for the truth or you've been here a while just kind of, you know, wondering what this is all about. And my exhortation to you is to submit your life to Jesus this morning and let him answer your questions. There's no point in waiting. Paul said that in the beginning of this letter. He said that. He said, today is the day of salvation. There's a God who sees you. There's a God who knows you, who loves you and desires the very best for you. But your sin has separated you from him. I can't promise that your life uh, is going to be any easier. It's probably going to be harder, but he's calling you to be reconciled to Jesus in the weakness of your flesh, to confess your sin and submit your life to him. And you will have assurance of eternity and true joy and fulfillment in this life. Being a good person is not a foundation for faith. In that scenario, you ultimately are your own God. And maybe, that, well, maybe there's someone today, you were born into the church, or even baptized as a baby, your parents took you to church every single week. You have great church pedigree. And Paul would say, examine yourself. Is Christ in you? Or is your foundation of faith your church membership card? Paul seems to ask a rhetorical question there in chapter five. He says, or do you realize this about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you? And then he kind of pauses, unless you indeed fail to meet the test. Paul realizes that there are gonna be some who hear this letter read or they read it themselves and they will not have true faith. 
They have put their faith in something else. It's not the, the gospel that was founded in Christ, the gospel that Paul had brought to the church, the true gospel. They are attending church, but they do not know Jesus. And I think the same can be said for those that maybe prayed a prayer in, in times past, and you've just kind of been on cruise control since that point. You just kind of put in the heading, and it's like, well, I'm going that way, and hopefully I get to heaven. You know, but there's been no real change in your life. There's, uh, there's been no transformation. And that prayer means nothing if there's no transformation and, and no submission to the will of God in your life. Are you heading the same direction that Jesus is? Paul would say, examine your heart. Check your compass this morning. Now, if any of these things that Paul referred to in chapter 12 there at the end characterize our lives, it, it is cause for examination. You know, quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, sexual immorality. We can struggle with these things. We can stumble. But if we, believe, if we walk in them and if we remain unrepentant, then we need to examine our hearts, get back on course. Make sure our compass is working right. Bring it to the word of God. Bring it to the Lord. For all Christians, it's a healthy practice to examine our hearts once in a while. There's so many forces that are acting on us daily, daily to divert our gaze from the face of Jesus, to obscure our goal. Paul wrote to the Philippians, he said, I press on in chapter three, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's so many winds of, of doctrine and undercurrents of worldly, worldly virtues that would want to push us off that goal, push us off course. It's wise it's just wise to pray with the psalmist once in a while. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be a grievous way, any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting because there's just so much at stake. Now, I know we've been asking some uh, difficult questions this morning, but I think it was warranted because Paul asked those questions in this chapter and I hope you took them seriously because verse 8 says, we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. And like Paul, I, I don't want to share something this morning that's not truthful, makes you feel good and warm fuzzies, but it's, it's not the truth. It's not the word of God. It's not what was written there. There's no power in that at all. The power is in the gospel, not in my words or my ability to articulate them. Paul understood this. And my hope today is that, you know, as we go from this place, that a healthy examination of our hearts will, will lead to assurance, assurance in our salvation. This is our fourth and final talking point, assurance. It certainly would be irresponsible of me to kind of leave you on the precipice of examination because the Bible tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? All right. You know, examination without assurance would just lead you to a very, very dark place this morning. Our assurance is not found in ourselves. It's always in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And that is why Paul was so adamant about preaching the cross and Christ crucified. He knew that it was in the victory of Jesus that all his, all his weaknesses were swallowed up. And that is where we have to start and where we finish. Assurance begins with knowing that God values a broken and contrite spirit, a, a humble realization of our need for him. 
we really only have two questions to answer to walk in assurance of our salvation. Number one, do you believe this morning that Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sins and then rose again from the dead? And secondly, do you trust him alone for your salvation? If we answer yes to those questions, we have set our compass to the right heading. Jesus in you, the hope of glory. Our relationship with God is restored and the fruit of the relationship will now start to bear peaceful fruit of righteousness. Essentially, when we examine our hearts, we revisit those questions over and over again. Do you believe that Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sins and rose again from the dead? And do you trust in him alone for your salvation? It's why we take communion every week. We are stubborn, forgetful people. Uh, I hope that's not offensive, but we are a stubborn and forgetful people, and God knew that. Communion reminds us of the cross, of all Jesus has done for us, doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves in the weakness of our own fallen nature. His victory over death has become our victory. We are made strong in him. Our weakness is swallowed up in his strength. We need to be reminded of that over and over and over again. Remembering this gives us assurance that we are headed in the right direction, on the right path. If we keep our eyes on Jesus, we're not going to be led astray or go astray. He is is the author and perfecter of our faith. And we can be confident that he who has begun a good work in you and I, he will complete it. Paul brings this letter to close there in, in, in verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. I find the shift there in tone quite interesting after the giving them this big tongue lashing there and the, the preceding verse as Paul concludes, finally, brothers, rejoice. It's a bit... Uh, Amusing. I think this kind of speaks to the, 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 the Father's heart of Paul, which he learned in humbleness by walking with Jesus. And maybe you, some of you remember a time when you were disciplined by your parents, and then they told you after that, they said, I disciplined you because I love you. And at that moment, you were like, I'm not sure I agree with that sentiment. <laughs> but it spoke to their motivation, Paul's closing remarks, starting in verse 10, they speak to the deep relationship of love that we've read page after page, the love that he has for this church, speaks to his calling as an apostle and the heart behind the gospel message he has given, he had been given by God. No matter where this examination led, in Paul's eyes and his heart, it was for restoration, reconciliation. Sometimes hard things have to be said. They just need to be. Uh, Lines have to be drawn, you know, especially when it comes to the integrity of the gospel and the holiness of the the church. We, We draw lines because God has drawn lines in his word. But in Jesus, we see the Father heart of God to bring restoration if we would humble ourselves and confess our need for him, submit our lives to him. His way will always be the best way. Sometimes it might not seem like we're moving in the right direction and it seems really, really hard, but God knows exactly the course heading that we need to be on and our final destination with him for all eternity. 
And so we conclude this morning with verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. This is the only place in the New Testament where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are, are mentioned together in this kind of blessing. What a beautiful blessing it is. And my hope today is that you would walk in the grace of the Lord Jesus, that you would know the love of God and that you would feel the ever-present Holy Spirit in your life guiding you and bringing comfort. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.